0: Hi, this is Brent White, and welcome back to my podcast. I preached the following sermon on July 5th, 2020 at Tacoma First United Methodist Church. The sermon title is, It's Not What You Do, It's Who You Are, and the scripture is Galatians 3, verses 5 to 14. I hope you enjoy it. I grew up Southern Baptist, as I know some of you did, and as you might know, Baptists don't have any kind of confirmation class. You know, everything you wanted to know about the Christian faith but were afraid to ask. There's no formal process that leads young people into making a decision to receive Christ as their Savior and Lord. Um, For better or worse, um, instead, it usually happens something like this. After the pastor preaches his sermon, he makes an invitation for the congregation to receive Christ, and then um, they'll play an invitation hymn. Maybe during one of the 26 verses of Just As I Am, somebody will feel the tug of the Holy Spirit and walk down the aisle and pray a sinner's prayer, and later on, get baptized. Many of you know what I'm talking about because you've been through that, and I have too, and I am not being critical of that tradition at all. Except, in my case, at least in the church I grew up in, it would have been nice if somebody explained what was happening during that time in the service, because between the ages of about eight and twelve, I watched one Sunday school classmate after another, one friend after another walk down the aisle and get saved. And that's what we ta- that's what we called it. It was getting saved. That's good biblical language. And I just sat in my seat, unsure and afraid. For one thing, oftentimes when people walked down the aisle to make a profession of faith, they they were in tears, and I did not want to cry in public. I did not want to cry in church. That would be mortifying to me. I certainly did not want to cry in front of, well, a girl named Betty Jean on whom I had a crush. Well, before long, I was the only one left who hadn't walked down the aisle and received Christ as my Savior, and I felt left out. To make matters worse, I had a friend down the street named Wes, and he was also a Baptist, and around that same time he had a birthday party, and during the party I watched him whisper in the ear of a friend of his and he was looking at me as he whispered something in his friend's ear and I confronted Wes about it and reluctantly he confessed. He said, "I told him that you're not a Christian." <laughs> I was offended. "What do you mean I'm not a Christian? How dare you?" <laughs> but Wes was right. I mean, Maybe he shouldn't have put it so bluntly. He shouldn't have been whispering about me, of course. But Wes knew, based on what I told him, based on what he saw in my life, that I did not know Jesus Christ as my Savior. But that's not how I interpreted Wes's words at the time. All I knew was, unlike Wes and unlike all of my Sunday school classmates, I hadn't yet walked down the aisle, prayed a sinner's prayer, made a profession of faith, gotten baptized. I hadn't done any of those things. Because for me, at that time, that's what being a Christian meant. There were certain things that I needed to do. I've told you before that Each of my parents experienced either a conversion or at least a deepening of their Christian faith before they died. But when I was young, they taught me through their example that being a Christian was kind of a superficial thing. It was was something that lived on the surface. Faith was something that lived on the surface. It was about keeping up appearances. For example, I was responsible in our family for cutting the grass, a chore that I hated. My two older sisters were responsible for doing dishes. I got stuck with the grass. But, but my parents wouldn't let me cut the grass On Sunday, because Sunday, after all, was the Sabbath. They had a rule, thou shalt not cut the grass on Sunday. All of our neighbors, as far as I could see, cut the grass on Sunday, but not me. And I actually liked this rule. I especially liked the rule when it was time to cut the grass and it was raining on Saturday, which meant I couldn't cut the grass, which meant not only did I not have to cut it on Saturday, I also didn't have to cut it on Sunday because, you know, so I got an extra day off. So I, I liked that rule. So my family taught me that being a Christian was mostly a list of do's and don'ts. And the most important do was walking down the aisle, praying a sinner's prayer, making a profession of faith, and getting baptized. And I hadn't done that yet. And here's something else that was going on in my life. I was afraid, even as a 12- or 13-year-old kid, I was afraid that my days were numbered. Because, remember, this was the early 80s, and many of you remember those days. There was a TV movie that came out in 1983 starring Jason Robards called The Day After. And this movie imagined what it would be like the day after a nuclear war between the U.S. and the USSR. Um, what would it be like the day after a nuclear holocaust? And I'll never forget, we subscribed to that magazine, Newsweek. And that week, before the, this movie was broadcast, the cover story on Newsweek magazine depicted a guy. He was out jogging in the suburbs, and behind him, in the background, was this giant mushroom cloud. I suspected he was about to get evaporated or something by this this bomb. And I thought to myself, well, I like to go jogging, (laughs) and uh, could this happen to me? I mean, could I just be minding my own business, and all of a sudden there's a missile striking right behind me and, and killing me. It was a scary time for me. Um, well, there was the, that movie the day after, but it wasn't just that. Um, we played an arcade game called Missile Command, in which you had to shoot nuclear missiles down out of the sky before those missiles came and landed on one of your cities and reduced it to rubble. We heard President Reagan actually talk about a a real-life missile defense system that was nicknamed Star Wars. We saw movies like War Games, in which a young Matthew Broderick almost accidentally triggered World War III. He was this genius computer hacker, and he hacked into the Pentagon computers. Um, The rock star, Sting had a hit song called Russians, in which he wondered if the Russians loved their children too, and if they did, surely they wouldn't attack the West with nukes. I was impressionable. I absorbed all these messages in our culture, and I was reasonably certain back then that I was going to die in a nuclear war. And to make matters worse, I knew I wasn't saved. I wasn't ready to come face to face with God, because whatever it meant to know Jesus as my Savior and Lord, I knew that I didn't know Jesus like that. So I knew even as a young teenager that I had a spiritual problem, and I lived with this nagging question. What do I need to do to be in a right relationship with God? And how will I know that I've done enough? Well, how would the Apostle Paul answer that question from today's scripture? He would say this, if being saved were a matter of what we do, we can never do enough. He would say that God's plan from the beginning of history is that we would be saved or justified or made right with God or declared righteous before God through faith in his Son, Jesus Christ. He would say that God always intended for salvation to be based on faith and nothing but. Recall the situation in these Galatian churches. The reason Paul is writing this letter. False teachers called Judaizers have infiltrated these churches, and they were teaching the Galatians something like this If you want to be saved, faith in Jesus is, of course, important and necessary, but you also have to do some things. In this case, Men have to get circumcised, and you have to follow Jewish dietary laws, including the most famous one, thou shalt not eat pork, and you have to observe these holy days and these festivals. Now, is there anything wrong with being circumcised or following dietary laws or observing certain holidays and festivals? No! I mean, Even today, I have met, and I certainly know about, many Jewish Christians who cherish their Jewish identity and heritage and continue to uh, follow Jewish customs and rituals, even as they also believe in and worship Jesus as their Savior and Lord." And there's nothing wrong with that. Why? Because they're not depending on their Jewish identity. They're not depending on their performance of certain rituals and observance of customs. They're not depending on anything that they have to do. They're depending on Christ alone to save them. And this is where I went wrong when I was a young teenager growing up in church. In order to be saved, I believed I had to do certain things, even perfectly good things like walking down that aisle in response to the pastor's invitation and praying a sinner's prayer and professing my faith and getting baptized and going to church regularly and avoiding certain sins. Those things are good perfectly good in and of themselves, but none of those things by themselves, apart from faith in Christ, can save us. No, God never intended for us to be saved by anything that we can do. Salvation was always intended by God to be based on faith alone. And to make this point, Paul goes nearly all the way back in the Bible to the beginning of Abraham's story, God made Abraham a promise. God told him that even though he and Sarah were both old and well past the point of childbearing, and even when they were younger, they were unable to get pregnant, in spite of all that, God promised that he was going to work a miracle and he was going to give them a son. And through that son, their descendants would be as numerous as the stars in the sky. And the most important part of that promise was that one of his descendants, Jesus Christ, would save the world from its sin. And in Genesis fifteen six, which Paul quotes in verse 6 of Galatians 3, Abraham, he says, believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness. This is nothing other than the gospel, Paul says. Way back in the first book of the Bible, God was telling Abraham through his spoken word to him, and he's telling us through his written word today that we are brought into a right relationship with God through faith alone. The moment Abraham believed, it's as if righteousness was credited to Abraham's account. Let's say you work really hard in your career, and you earn a billion dollars. A lot of money. It's within the realm of possibility that it could happen, right? There are plenty of billionaires, Okay, so you've worked hard, you've earned your billion dollars through your hard work. Let's say that your best friend doesn't work hard at all. But a rich person he knows transfers a billion dollars into your friend's bank account as a free, unmerited gift, no strings attached. Now that's a good friend, I would say, so let me ask you, who has more money, you with the billion dollars that you earn through hard work, or your friend who was given the billion dollars as a gift? It was credited to his account. That's a silly question. You have exactly the same amount of money, whether you worked hard for it or whether it was credited to your account. This is precisely Paul's point about being righteous before God. Except, unlike the possibility, however remote, of earning a billion dollars, we can never work hard enough to earn our good standing before God. If we're going to be made righteous, it's only because of what God does for us through Christ, which we only receive by faith in him. Does that make sense? And that's Paul's gospel, and I hope that's my gospel, because that's the only gospel there is. I told you earlier that I recognized, as a 13-year-old that I had a spiritual problem. I was afraid of dying because I was afraid of what happened next. I wanted my sins forgiven. I wanted to go to heaven. I wanted eternal life, but I didn't know what to do. I didn't know how to receive this gift of eternal life. I told my parents, and they didn't know what to do either, but they did talk to the youth pastor at my church, and they signed me up for a youth retreat a couple of months later in Black Mountain, North Carolina, which is next to Montreat, which is where Billy Graham lived, if you know where that is. Anyway, when I was on this retreat, I was hoping, I was hoping that I would get the equivalent of a get-out-of-hell-free card redeemable upon my death, <laughs> you know, because I thought that, that being a Christian was mostly a one-time decision to accept Christ, and once you've made it, well, it didn't really matter what you did for the rest of your life. You could just sort of leave Jesus in the corner, you know, and uh, get on with your life. And when you died, you just pull out your card, you know, and uh, you'd get free admission to heaven. That's what I thought going into the retreat. But of course, when the Lord got hold of me on that retreat, he gave me something so much better than a get-out-of-hell-free card. In fact, God gave me what Paul refers to in verses 13 and 14. Because of what Christ did for us on the cross, redeeming us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us, God gave Gentiles, like us, the blessing of Abraham, which is, or it includes, uh, forgiveness of sin, eternal life, salvation. And he gave us this, Paul says, so that—now get this—so that we might receive the promised Spirit through faith. Wow, it almost sounds like receiving the promised Spirit is the most important consequence of the gospel. Like, receiving the Spirit is the, is the main goal, doesn't it? If you've— um, If you've read my social media posts regularly, you know um, that for the past year, my dog Ringo has served as a living parable of God's love for me. Thank you, Jesus. It's true. And it was especially true two weeks ago. Ringo became seriously ill. He ate something he shouldn't have. Not, not that he doesn't often eat things he shouldn't, but, but this time he, his digestive system couldn't handle it. He was dehydrated and lethargic. Frankly, I thought we might lose him, and my whole family, uh, we were heartbroken and, and worried. Ringo spent that Saturday night at a veterinary hospital. And I'll never forget the experience of watching the vet technician pick up Ringo from our car and walk him across the parking lot into the hospital. Because of the pandemic, we, were, uh, we weren't allowed to accompany him. And it's not like we could explain to this dog you know, what was going on. We couldn't reassure him in any way and when Ringo, just before Ringo got to the door of this veterinary hospital, I promise you, he stopped and looked back at us. And his expression <laughs> said something like this Why are you doing this to me? What did I do wrong? Is it over between us? I felt so much love for that creature in that moment. It wrecked me. Later, when I was having a quiet time and praying and reading Scripture, this thought struck me. Maybe this will help you. The intense pain and longing that I felt for Ringo in that moment must be something like God's love for his children only for God. It's it's better because God's love is perfect and infinitely stronger. And, And I know, I know I'm a child of my heavenly Father. Why? Because of what Paul says in verse 14. God has given me his Holy Spirit. And one of the most amazing promises about God's Holy Spirit that we find in Scripture is in Romans 8:16. The Spirit Himself bears witness with our Spirit that we are children of God. God. The Spirit reassures me and reminds me that I'm a child of my heavenly Father. I know it deep in my bones, in the core of my being. You see, being a Christian, contrary to what I thought when I was 13 years old, being a Christian is not about doing. It's about belonging So I think, so I think of how my heart went out to Ringo in that parking lot two weeks ago. How I thought, what wouldn't I do for this creature that I love? What wouldn't I give for him? What wouldn't I do if it were within my power to rescue him from any harm and always work in his best interest. If I felt that way about Ringo, how does my infinitely powerful, perfectly loving Heavenly Father feel about me, His beloved Son? And I know I'm His beloved Son because the Holy Spirit is telling me and testifying to me that I am. I want you to know that your Heavenly Father loves you like that, and you can know it too. How? Well, I'll leave you with the final stanza of this great old hymn, which puts it like this. Cast your deadly doing down, down at Jesus' feet. Stand in him, in him alone, Gloriously complete. Cast your deadly doing down, down at Jesus' feet. Stand in him, in him alone, gloriously complete. Amen. Almighty God, because of what Christ did in becoming a curse for us on the cross, taking the curse that we deserved and suffering for it himself, And in exchange, giving us as a gift His righteousness so that we can stand before you as perfectly holy and we can have a a relationship with you. We can become your sons and daughters because of what Christ did for us. We are indeed gloriously complete and we are grateful that you make us that way through faith in Christ. For anyone who is hearing this sermon, who perhaps for many years has been trying to earn your grace, or has been depending on his own or her own goodness, their own good works, to make themselves acceptable to you, I pray that by the power of your Spirit, you would enable them to repent, to. to uh, set aside or cast down their deadly doing, and instead trust in you and your son Jesus alone. Trust in you alone for their salvation, and not on anything that they can do themselves. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks for listening. During this COVID-19 crisis, our worship schedule is unusual, so I invite you to go to tacoafirstumc.org for more information about what time we meet and where and what the safety guidelines are. You can also worship online on our church Facebook page and on our YouTube channel. And again, our website is tocoafirstumc.org.